This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas, because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, where we uncover the truth, one guest at a time. For those who dare to seek, Veritas is the place where they shall find. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members. As always, you are keeping Veritas alive. Due to the timeliness of this show, I decided to postpone our show with Dr. Joseph Farrell until next week. There is a preview right on our website that will keep you on the edge of your seat. And by the way, Robert Morningsky is back. You will hear a show with him very soon. But tonight, we have three segments for you. The first one includes someone who has come forward with a solution to the Gulf of Mexico oil spill. His solution not only can seal the leak, but can also allow BP to continue using the oil or the product without having to dig again. It is a security mechanism that can prevent a similar disaster from occurring in the future, something that regulatory agencies should mandate. However, this invention 
does come with issues dealing with possible loss of employment, politics, threats, etc. That is why we will call him Mike. Mike is accompanied by tonight's special guest, James Horak. Some of you may have heard of James on The Kevin Smith Show, where he has appeared multiple times. Mike and James will be with us shortly. To listen to the complete version of this and all our past and future shows, become a member. You will receive immediate access to all our inventory of shows, that's 79 to date, and a few Veritas live shows. In addition, you will receive access to the Manticore Forum. Just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe and take Veritas with you. And we have one more advertising spot available to the highest bidder. The other one is already taken by the winner of last week's auction. The ad space on the left side of the website is now up for auction on eBay, and it will end on Monday, June the 7th. So you have a couple of days to participate. For more information, click on the This Space Up for Auction link on our homepage. Don't wait, bid now. And ever since I started this show, there is a name of an author that many of our guests continue to repeat again and again. Many of you may be familiar with the book The Ringmakers of Saturn by Dr. Norman Berggren. I have spoken to a few guests regarding Dr. Berggren and they have all told me that Dr. Berggren does not accept any interviews. If you know me by now, you know that's not sufficient for me. Last night, I decided to track Dr. Berggren down. I found his contact information and decided to place a phone call today. I wish I had recorded the conversation, but I did not. First of all, I asked him if he would accept an interview, and he said, yes, but not right now. You see, he is working on something that may rock the proverbial boat. It's the answer to the Clementine probe. Remember the hundreds of thousands of missing images that NASA continues to hide from us? He also shared with me he just lost his wife a few weeks ago. Therefore, he wouldn't be that enlightening during an interview. That is perfectly understandable. I offered my condolences on behalf of all of you and politely asked him when I could reconnect with him. He said, six months. I could not hang up without asking him one more question. I had to ask him if there is a correlation between the objects he refers to on his book, The Ringmakers of Saturn, and the objects we have seen around the sun lately? The answer? Quote, absolutely. It is all related. And when I put all the pieces together, you will know. Unquote. I didn't want to push him further and left it at that. So stay tuned to Veritas for any updates I may receive from Dr. Bergram. As of today, the Gulf of Mexico oil spill, or oil volcano, as we call it here, continues. British Petroleum says they had made some progress today. We are not here to point fingers or play the blame game. I have brought someone who says he has a solution, not only to put a stop to the spill, but to prevent future spills from occurring. We will call him Mike, but it's not his real name. He is concerned for his safety and the multi-decade tenure he has with the Fortune 100 company. That is why we have to protect his identity and some of the details of his invention. 
I felt compelled to bring him on because we should listen to these proposed solutions and do what we can to help put them in action. First, I want to thank James Horak, who will be on the show later today and who's also accompanying us with this first segment. Mike listened to James Horak on the Kevin Smith show and they connected. James came to me with Mike's plan and here we are. First of all, hello Mike and James. Welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hello. 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 Great to be here. My pleasure. And once again, James Horak, who's going to be our our main guest tonight, uh, is spending some time here with Mike to explain what solution we can foresee with Mike's invention. Mike, first of all, why don't you tell the audience uh, as much as you can? Of course, once again, we have to keep your identity private in the meantime. But tell us who you are and, and what kind of solution are you proposing for this disaster? Well, I've been working in the chemical engineering uh, field for several decades, uh, nearing the end of my tenure uh, with, uh, as you said, a Fortune 100 company. And, uh, you know, frankly, over the years, I've seen uh, many uh, interesting chemical-related upsets in processes uh, uh, outside of the oil industry and, and, uh, and have witnessed uh, uh, several over the years inside of the oil industry. Um, Mike, if you get closer to your microphone, please. Basically, uh, good. You know, yeah, I'm I'm here to uh, talk about uh, some technology that uh, uh, may be useful, in my opinion, um, to uh, stop this leak that we have in the Gulf presently. But more importantly. Uh, I'm not certain that uh, this is the only time this will happen. Uh, I expect that in the future with the number of oil wells and rigs that we have up and down the coast that uh, there's the potential for this to happen uh, over and over. And frankly, uh, I'm concerned that uh, not enough uh, money, uh, thought and effort in terms of engineering are spent uh, designing ways to predict these types of disasters, first of all, and to have the proper equipment in place to mitigate quickly uh, when a disaster occurs of this nature, to, to, uh, to turn it back and, uh, and fix it uh, in a timely manner to minimize the level of uh, damage that's done to our natural resources. James, once again, how did you get in touch with, with Mike and what compelled you to, to convince him to, to come forward and, and mention what he has to offer. Mike got in touch with me after an interview on the Kevin Smith show. Uh, I had uh, offered an idea of, of a device that I thought might work, although I'm not a mechanical engineer as I, I spoke, and uh, I wanted to start a ball rolling. And luckily, uh, Mike was listening and he picked that ball up, and he certainly uh, informed me uh, far more dramatically of the elements that were involved in what went into probably causing this mishap and, and what it would take to overcome the complexities that came about due to it uh, and what had defeated the early attempts as he said, to mitigate it, 
and uh, what he felt uh, could uh, operate to shut it down, to stop the, the gush, and, and what could, uh, could lead to a new standard uh, for regulation and, and for prevention uh, across the board in the oil industry itself in offshore drilling. So uh, I listened intently, and uh, we, uh, Mike and I, became friends. And eventually, we uh, we started talking more and more. And, and I could see that he had in mind uh, a way to attack this problem. And uh, he told me essentially about what he what he uh, felt would work. And in the meantime, I found out something about his credentials. I found out something about him. Uh, his uh, credentials were very, very impressive indeed. And the more I got to talk with him, the more I realized that his, his concern for the environment was very genuine, that his idea about what would work uh, was was being put forth openly and without reservation, and that that basically what he was willing to do was was offer all of us uh, a, a remediation that that no one else seems to be doing. So, uh, in time, he drew up uh, uh, some ideas, and I could I could understand clearly where he was coming from, and clearly. That, that what he was offering was feasible, and and as uh, as it drew on, uh, I wasn't the only one to think so. His colleagues did as well. And as far as you can, Mike, first of all, when did you come up with this idea? Was it before the oil spill, or was it after? Well, frankly, it was was after the the, the spill had occurred. I. I, I I never expected that uh, it would take uh, this engineer, this BP engineering team, this long uh, to uh, come up with a solution to this this uh, this leak. Uh, I, you know, in in, in in all honesty, I was certain that uh, that there were plans in place in engineering to handle this type of upset. Um, based on the pictures that we receive uh, from BP undersea video systems, uh, we, we have to uh, assume that, that those pictures that we're receiving are correct. And I had been watching uh, the situation uh, as uh, the, the weeks unfolded here. And I, again, as uh, James said, I was listening to uh, the Kevin Smith show and I heard his proposition and you know, I I had been working in the area area of hydrate formation and understanding uh, hydrate species quality and uh, the conditions where hydrate forms, uh, and I knew a little about uh, the topic of hydrate formation. And um, it was mentioned, I think, somewhere in one of the uh, internet. Uh, uh, sites that uh, there was the possibility that hydrate may have contributed to this. Uh, and after listening to James' proposition, I realized that uh, that it probably wouldn't work. Um, and that, frankly, is where uh, I was uh, inspired to move forward and uh, look closer at the situation. 
uh, get some more information regarding uh, what's happening down there and uh, the the depths, the pressures, calculating pressures, so on and so forth. Uh, but again, James uh, was the inspiration for me, I believe, to start thinking about this. And it wasn't long after that that uh, uh, I sat down with a, with a with a paper and a pencil and started drawing this device. And uh, over several days, uh, I think it came to fruition in terms of, at least in my opinion and the, the opinion of my colleagues, that this could be uh, what I call a quick fix uh, opportunity uh, to uh, get a device uh, built up and made uh, so that we could drop it on that well and uh, put this uh, system into function rather quickly. And I think to the delight of BP, uh, we wouldn't lose the potential energy from this particular well, and BP would not have to incur the cost of drilling alternate access to this energy source. Uh, so again, to answer the question, I think James really got uh, me stimulated in terms of, uh, you know, uh, moving forward with, with a draft, uh, uh, placing some ideas on paper, and uh, from that point, um, I completed it, made a drawing, and I sent one of the drawings out to James to take a look at. He's had an opportunity to look at that. Unfortunately, uh, uh, we are pursuing uh, a possible angle to get this uh, idea viewed and considered. Uh, right now, uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of the number of suggestions that have come in from all over the world, but there are tens of thousands of suggestions, uh, 700 of which I, I've read are in for serious consideration. I'm not sure that uh, that I'm I'm uh, I'm convinced that uh, BP has the the engineering uh, staff to consider 700 ideas. So I, I think that's more of a media uh, uh, appeasement uh, in terms of uh, uh, putting the idea out there that uh, no, we're listening. Uh, unfortunately, uh, again and and. Uh, you know, I hate to say this, but uh, uh, where uh, where were the the engineering uh, solutions uh, to a situation like this before the fact? Uh, this is not uh, typically how we function in the chemical industry uh, in this world, and uh, we we uh, generally uh, have uh, uh, meetings where we sit down and discuss uh, uh, the the risks associated with the technology. Uh, understandably, this uh, uh, oil well drilling and, and uh, oil recovery technology is 100 or more years old. Uh, but that doesn't uh, change the fact that uh, this is a very dangerous uh, operation, first of all. And now when you place these wells uh, out into the, uh, the, the natural resources, the, the, the oceans and and waters of, uh, of, the, of our planet, uh, it becomes all the more important for, in my opinion, for the uh, oil companies to spend a little more time, a little more money, uh, formulating opportunities uh, and predicting uh, some of these failure modes and having uh, simple engineered ideas that I brought forward in a matter of days uh, ready. Uh, to be put in place when a situation like this occurs. Mike, can you give us an over, a, a bird's eye view 
of what your invention does, how long would it take for it to be put into action? How long would it be until it's built? Give us a synopsis of, of what we could expect. Well, it's, it's a pretty simple device. Um, and uh, it, it could probably uh, be manufactured in about two to three weeks. If you could get closer to the microphone again, please. Uh, Great, thanks. Again, it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a fairly simple device that I think could be manufactured in a matter of uh, probably two or three weeks. Um, I've already done the legwork uh, with some of the key uh, uh, parts of this invention that make it, I think, the ideal invention uh, to handle a, a, a situation, technically to handle a situation like we have with this particular head. And... Um, I think the beauty of this, this particular idea is the fact that it, 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 it does require uh, a clear uh, top point to be uh, 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 established on that uh, wellhead, uh, but it certainly doesn't need to be a perfect cut like they're attempting to uh, make uh, presently with, a, with an undersea uh, uh, saw device, a deep sea saw device. Uh, this particular idea could actually function uh, because of the way the technology is is, uh, uh, is executed. Uh, it, it could actually uh, function very well on a jagged edge surface. So it, uh, uh, it, it's a situation where we just need to simply uh, show about uh, three feet of, uh, of that wellhead. And if that means blowing away some of that uh, that sand that's around uh, what I see there. If those those uh, photographs, I'm sorry, those videos that uh, I'm looking at are correct, uh, this guy could be lowered over the existing pipe, uh, secured in place, and uh, at that point, there's an accessory uh, flange mounted on the top of this unit that would allow them to uh, either. Uh, connect whatever technology they need to connect to do whatever they need to do with the product that's spewing out of that pipe right now. Uh, but I would like to make it clear that there, there is another technical consideration here, is that when you have an explosion and you have a, a pressure front that moves through uh, a, a long diameter of, of half-inch uh, wall piping, I think this is roughly 25 inches in diameter, that uh, you can't predict uh, what kind of damage may have been done below the surface. Uh, in other words, the casing itself may be damaged below the point where we can see it in the videos. And if that's the case, if we attempt to deadhead that well, the pressure from the, uh, the, the product internal may uh, rise to a level where if we've created a flaw from the explosion, then uh, you know we may have a, a tear that occurs below the surface, and if that happens, we're in trouble. So uh, with this particular device, uh, it would allow them to uh, at least slow the flow of release into the water while they brought in the whatever accessory piping they needed to bring in to get the product uh, to a separator to separate off the natural gas and the oil and get it to a... Uh, a super tanker. So like, Mike, like a faucet, you could close it, you can open it as you wish without having to lose, as you say, the existing, uh, the existing equipment that's already in place to extract oil from that area. 
Exactly. If you look at that uh, that top fixed device that they attempted to put on there, uh, they could mount that, that if, if they so chose to, they could mount that top fixed device to the uh, flange on the top of my uh, my unit uh, and use that as a host for uh, whatever other piping or accessory that they need uh, in order to handle this, uh, this oil and reclaim it. Mike, have you had any peer review or, or anybody within your company take a look at uh, your, your design? Frankly, uh, no. And uh, the reason for this is that the, uh, the idea was just presented uh, yesterday. And uh, I need to, to, to mention a, you know, on a personal note here that uh, uh, this, this is not an idea that was uh, created um, on the on the dollar of the company that employs me. Okay, this was a, an idea that I created personally, and I emotionally um, and and probably wrongly so now in retrospect wasted some time uh, with the idea that uh, you know I may be able to penetrate uh, somehow uh, this massive uh, crisis in terms of the engineering, uh, probably uh, the number of engineers that are being diverted to this by BP to get this information to where it needed to be for consideration. And that was a foolish uh, thought on my part, I believe. My decision was to take it through the company that I'm employed by uh, and uh, use uh, and hopefully uh, access uh, their resources to help get this thing where it needs to be. Um, it has not been through a peer review, a formal peer review. That would be the next step. That would come in uh, probably a week or so. Uh, we would sit down with a number of uh, very talented engineers and uh, we would sit as a group and try to shoot holes in this idea. And, and if after we get through that uh, peer review, uh, we have no holes or we have uh, maybe some you know, small changes that need to be made in the design for whatever reason uh, comes out of this discussion, uh, then we would make those changes. Uh, there is the possibility that uh, that I have failed to uh, recognize uh, uh, all of the details. Uh, there may be some uh, critical flaw in this design, uh, but I really, I don't see it. Um, but that's what these peer reviews are designed to do. You know, Mike, uh, a few weeks ago, I did a, an interview with somebody, and we were discussing the oil spill, and the fact that maybe, just maybe, something good will be coming out of this disaster, whether it is uh, a technology that makes you proactive to avoid such a disaster from ever happening again, or perhaps even alternative energies that come out so that we can completely or partially stop the dependency we have on, on oil. But that's a different show. But your part is that you have this, this plan and this invention. Have you had access to a laboratory in which you have been able to, to replicate some what-if scenarios? Oh, not at all. Uh, not at this point. Um, uh, they're, they're, within my company, there is uh, an endless laboratory resource uh, to test these types of ideas. Uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, this, this, this company obviously is a business, and uh, uh, they need to, to see some value in terms of uh, uh, a 
a product uh, release that uh, uh, that that has uh, some uh, profit uh, potential for the company. Uh, they have to pay us, and they have to sustain the company. So that uh, it, it's pretty clear here that the resources, uh, in terms of laboratory and equipment to test this device, are available. Uh, the decisions have to be made, and the, and the funding would have to come forward. Uh, from this company to, uh, to pursue this. I'm losing you once again. If you get closer to your microphone, uh, Mike, please. Um, first of all, a lot of people may be wondering why we are keeping your name confidential and the company where you work at confidential. Can you enlighten those who are wondering that? Well, I mean, it's uh, this is a, it's a very controversial uh, uh uh, issue right now, and, and uh, you know, it's uh, protect myself in terms of my tenure with the company, and and to protect the company um, that is considering this idea. Um, I prefer to fly under the radar, so to speak, uh, with this idea. I'm just here to uh, point out that uh, that there are engineering solutions to these problems, and. Uh, for me, it's uh, it's difficult uh, for me uh, to see the damage that uh, it's being done out there, and uh, knowing full well that uh, that there should have been technology in place to handle this. And uh, you know, I hate to point fingers in that way. And I know you can't predict everything, uh, but uh, this you know this appears to be rocket science, but it's not. Uh, they were they're just not. Frankly, in my opinion, they just were not ready. Uh, to handle the situation, and, and uh, I agree with you entirely. Uh, moving forward, and it's unfortunate that things like this have to happen in order for us to uh, put in place uh, federal uh, regulations and, and make it mandatory for these companies to uh, to have this equipment available, even if they never use it. And, and we hope that they never have to. Uh, but uh, I, I I sincerely hope that. Uh, we learn a lesson from this. Uh, there are thousands, tens of thousands of these wells up and down the coastline of the United States. And <laughs> all we need is uh, uh, some natural disaster. I mean, it's pretty clear that the the earth uh, crust is in a state of upheaval right now. And uh, it's not uh, too far-fetched to believe that we could get a swell large enough from a uh, an earthquake incident uh, on the other side of the uh, of the planet that sends a wave over here and and, and lifts a number of these uh, rigs up and, and causes a similar uh, situation. Uh, the question I have is, uh, are we ready to handle it? If we're not, are we ready to accept the consequences? And those consequences are serious. And I was uh, talking with Mike yesterday about a, an analogy. We all remember in the 70s, I believe it was, or 80s, when the airbag came up as a standard, I believe it was the 80s or 90s, became a standard uh, security feature for every vehicle, at least in, in North America. And how many years did the inventor try to, to push this technology forward to save lives? How many people had to die? In this case, how many oil spills do we have to go through before a company realizes that we have, and perhaps in this case, uh, a multinational uh, 
entity that says we cannot continue doing this unless we have the the necessary precautions to prevent it. And this is exactly what you're trying to do. Also, tell us, Mike, how much production-wise are we talking about here, dollar dollars-wise, to make this uh, piece of equipment that you're referring to? Well, the biggest expense here is the material cost uh, that would have to be made from uh, the... Uh, uh, a 316 stainless steel, which is, uh, and it's a pretty heavy billet of steel. It's about, it would have to be 50 or more inches in diameter to start with. And uh, it would be built on a very large uh, uh, turning uh, lathe uh, and mill. So it, uh, you know, would require, uh, I would say roughly, uh, probably $25,000 to $30,000 in material cost and another, uh, Maybe thirty or forty thousand dollars in equipment and uh, turning costs to uh, to bring this thing to fruition. And to a lot of people, this may sound like a a lot of money, but we're dealing with a company like BP, a multi-billion-dollar company. Fifty thousand dollars, one hundred thousand dollars is is what is nothing. And here's my concern, Mike. You have BP right now trying to to remediate this situation, and so far they have been unsuccessful. If somebody like you, and as you mentioned, 700 others are proposing solutions, don't you think that BP may be hesitant to allow anybody from outside the company to, to claim, and, and I hate to even talk about corporate egos here, and boards of directors that, that may be looking at the chairman of the board, the CEO, Tony Hayward, for answers. If they allow you to come forward and, and get this done, what is that going to do to BP? And that's why I'm, I, I, I'm, I hate to be skeptical, but I wonder if there's going to be a gatekeeper process that would prevent technologies like yours from being implemented. Oh, well, I mean, in the land of the corporation, anything is possible. Uh, this is, again, politically charged. There, There's professional ego involved in this, but... I, I have to say that I'm certain that uh, there are good people uh, that are working very, very hard on, on this problem within BP that have honest intentions. And I, I don't want to paint uh, those individuals uh, as, uh, as evil with, with what we're discussing here. I'm sure they're not. And I know that they're doing the best that they can. Uh, but, you know, this, this is a difficult situation, and uh, in my opinion, you know, this, this has gone on too long. And, uh, uh, you know, somehow uh, there needs to be panel discussion with some, some uh, alternate uh, 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 engineers from around the world, from different companies that have ideas uh, that need to be considered Uh, seriously, and and it, it should it should have happened long ago. Uh, but again, uh, you know, I, I, I want to stop short of uh, of pointing any fingers here and, and claiming that the the intent of, of the uh, the engineers on the ground attempting to uh, correct this problem are not working very hard and around the clock, uh, you know, to, to fix this thing. Um, I I can only. Uh, speculate in terms of the politics surrounding this, and certainly as an employee of a large company, um, the ultimatum is uh, 
you play by the rules, and uh, the rules come from above. So uh, uh, you can uh, you can guess uh, only a, a speculator guess uh, you know the, the pressure that these guys are under. Right now. Exactly, and it's it's sad to know that this is happening because. When you think about of the repercussions that this oil spill may have, not not only to to the environment, but to the people and 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 to the planet, and forty four forty five days in my mind seems too much. I've seen a lot of the polls out there stating that people would prefer for BP to stay uh, behind the remediation process as opposed to the federal government from intervening, and. I'm not here to edit, editorialize anything, but when I see somebody with a disease that goes to one doctor and that doctor continues to, to, to not find a solution, my gut feeling says change doctor. In this case, if BP continues to fail, shouldn't we bring our own army corps or engineer or our own areas of expertise and perhaps even other companies other perspectives i believe russia i believe other companies in the middle east have offered to help and i don't think that that help has been welcomed other countries have been offering as well and and this is again dealing in speculation but why do you believe this is happening uh to be honest with you uh, i have no idea i I wouldn't even uh, venture in that direction. I, I can I can certainly speculate like everyone else, um, but uh, clearly, uh, forty-five days is far too long. Absolutely. What's the next step for you, Mike? And what can we do here, given the circumstances that we have to protect your identity? What can we possibly do to assist at this point? And, and and can you give us updates as you progress presenting this to to a group of uh, of relevant people that I believe you'll be doing so next week? Well, that's that's uh, that's certainly uh, possible. I uh, I will say that the the system in terms of taking these ideas from a CAD drawing to and actually, wor- an actual working part, and the bureaucratic uh, red tape uh, involved in getting them to the source of the problem and convincing—well, uh, you know the old saying—is uh, you know you get ten people in the room. If you can get two people to agree on something, uh, you're doing really well. Right. Uh, so it's uh, you know the somehow the the the, the system functions. Uh, and certainly, if there's a profit involved, it functions like a well-oiled machine. I have to follow the protocol of the system and hope that uh, the people that uh, I will be involved with in the near future uh, see this as an important issue like I do. And if they do, and, uh, and our company is, is willing to invest in this, and they see the potential from this, or they have uh, some other reason uh, to pursue this, uh, it will happen. Uh, but the system in a large corporation takes time. And unfortunately, I will tell you that this device is not going to get to that uh, the source of that problem that we have in the next three months. It's not going to happen. So those guys uh, really need to come up with a solution and stop that oil from pumping out of that head and... and uh, and, uh, and mitigate the uh, damage to the environment that, uh, that uh, I think uh, 
uh, not enough people are, are paying attention to. Uh, this, this should be a public outcry, in my opinion, uh, based on the damage that uh, uh, that our uh, our children will have to face from from this disaster for years to come is immeasurable, in my opinion. And not only that, but we have people like Professor John Searle, people like Mike, who have an idea, who have an invention, and have to remain somewhat under the radar or keep part of the, the important aspects of their invention secret to prevent companies, perhaps with ulterior motives, from stealing the, the idea, the technology, maybe patent it, and then all of a sudden sequestering it from being used in the future. Is that a concern to you, Mike? Oh, that that can happen. Absolutely, it's a it's a situation where uh, one oil company may see it as a competitive advantage uh, to have this this capability uh, and not allow uh, you know a, a clear uh, system solution like this to be uh, distributed amongst all the oil companies. It's just imagine, I don't mean to interrupt you, but just imagine if you're a country and you're looking for a company to drill in your, uh, the coast of your country and you have people coming with, companies coming with proposals and only one company has a device that may prevent oil spills from happening. Which one do you think they may go and accept? Well, it's pretty clear to me, um, but unfortunately that uh, uh, I'm not sure the environment or... Uh, these types of issues are uh, the uh, first order uh, issues of consider- consideration in these discussions. Mm-hmm. I think we know um, why the oil companies are in business and they're there to make a profit. Bottom so line. Uh, yeah. yep. Okay, well, Mike, is there any, anything else you would like to share with the world at this point? Well, that pretty much sums it up for me. I just... Uh, Again, on a personal, uh, you know, note, I, I feel um, I'm so concerned. Uh, uh, people really need to pay close attention to what's going on here, and and demand that everything that can be done is done to to mitigate to stop the damage. But but that's not that's not the the most important part right now. The damage has already occurred, uh, and it continues to occur. They need to, to pull every possible opportunity that they have to get this oil up off the, the seafloor and to get it out of the water before it does any more damage. So there are two fronts here. There's one, how do we handle the damage that we've already done? How do we reclaim the oil before it does any more damage? And obviously we need to stop that well. So from my perspective, I only hope that uh, they can get the politics out of the way and do what needs to be done for the environment and that they're smart enough. I hate to say it that way, but I hope they're smart enough to recognize uh, that this is very serious and this is an environmental crisis that threatens the planet. And on the second segment of the show, we'll also be discussing with James Horak, other people who have come forward, people who are veterans of the show. David Sarita has a solution to be able to absorb the oil that has been spewing everywhere. And not only that, but to convert it into 
marine life food. And I think James Horak has a solution to that effect as well. But before we say goodbye for now to, to Mike, James, would you like to add anything else to this segment? Well, I respect Mike very much for coming forward and giving us the details he has. His invaluable information opens up a whole new vista to the understanding of the whole world for the problem and the, and the industry involved. I, I cannot express enough gratitude uh, to Mike for this type of, of information and for his almost wholehearted disclosure of it. Uh, my ultimate regard to him. Mike, on behalf of the planet, I want to thank you, and I hope that you serve as an example for everyone who's listening who may have a solution, not only to this problem, to the many other problems that may be surfacing in the future with all the earth changes that we're seeing. Mike, once again, thank you for, for being brave and being with us. I hope to hear back from you soon. Uh, we'll be back, uh, and thank you very much uh, for having me. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. For updates and news, visit our website and our forum. That's where the real discussion is taking place. Remember, my interaction with you does not end with the show. It only begins. And now, get ready to spend the night with someone with a very interesting life. Someone who can discuss a plethora of topics, ranging from the origins of humankind, the new world order, extraterrestrials, the population plans, and much more. James Horak is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Most of the great music you hear right here on The Veritas Show is supplied by the independent artists from Jamendo.com. If you hear a song you like, go over to our homepage, VeritasShow.com, click on the guest, look up the song, and download it. You can even buy the group's CDs, in many cases, right there at Jamendo.com. This is Kevin Smith from The Kevin Smith Show, and you are listening to The Veritas Show. For those listening, I want to give a bit of a background as to how we connected with James Horak. He is our special guest tonight. Many of our listeners also listen to The Kevin Smith Show, as I said before. Kevin has been on this show. I have been on his show. We seem to share many philosophies. One of them is to explore every avenue. If we continue interviewing the same people over and over again, our minds will become stagnant. That is why every so often we bring people who may not be known, but we deem that the information they have to share is so important that we have to disseminate it. And it is up to all of us to discern what we hear and make of it whatever we want. But like Kevin, I won't close the door to the unknown. That said, it was Kevin who interviewed James Horak a few times, and the requests I have received to interview James have not stopped. So I'm glad we have him today. We spent some time talking yesterday, and, and he touched so many subjects that I want this interview to be a conversation. 
And just to warn the audience, during my offline conversation with James yesterday, a few times we could hear, or I could hear, how certain parts of our conversation were being blocked, almost like a I'm warning you, because this may happen tonight. And without further ado, I would like to introduce to you for the first time on The Veritas Show, James Horak. Hello, James, and welcome to Veritas. May I call you James, by the way? Of course, Mel. Thank you. Well, I'm glad that we have you on the show, uh, James. A lot of people know you, because Kevin and I share a lot of our listeners. But I know there are some who don't know who you are. And I want you to give us a background of, of, so that those who don't know you are, have a better perspective. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? And what experiences shaped you? Well, I, I was born in Las Vegas, New Mexico, and came to Texas when I was almost four years old. And on the way, there was an incident that uh, seemed to be almost a prelude to my rest of my life. Uh, when uh, I entered the, the United States Navy, I uh, sort of had uh, that residue. And uh, it uh, followed me throughout. Uh, I did everything I could to, to acquire information and to, to study my experiences from different perspectives and, and uh, didn't make any really concrete conclusions until later on in my life when uh, things seemed to take a direction of their own and demonstrated design to me, which I didn't fully understand until around 1974. Uh, I uh, have had uh, cross-the-board experiences. I've almost been a jack-of-all-trades. I've had a varied education. Uh, I've chosen fields of endeavor that I wanted to be in and then seem to have been circumstantially minimalized from exploring them to any successful extent. Uh, I'm not looking to make excuses. I simply realize uh, that that most of the things that have happened to me in my life have happened uh, in, within the context of wisdom themselves. I don't think I would have been a very good doctor. I think I would have probably been drummed out of medical school the first time I stood up for what I believe in. Uh, I don't think that had I become a successful economist and financial advisor, I would have gone very far because I don't subscribe to Keynesian economics, etc., that sort of thing. I, I've always had a, a love of anthropology and archaeology and history and literature, the arts. Uh, just uh, examine it very closely and get involved very deeply with it when I have the opportunity, if I have near a the, a fine museum. Uh, I spend uh, a lot of time there. Uh, I, art history is extremely important uh, and in that it touches uh, the finest aspects of human expression. But uh, I've always been plagued by some circumstance or another until finally I got to a point where it, it uh, uh, what was going to happen to me inevitably happened. And, and I finally decided to make the most of it. I'm going to fast forward for a moment, and then we're going to go back in time. Uh, once again, let me talk about Kevin Smith. When I had him on the show, he told me of, of his experience and how when he came back from his international police time 
and doing his show, if he has tried to find jobs, they have not been able to find his background. In other words, in, in, all his years in law enforcement have disappeared. And of course, we surmise that it could be because of the topics that he discusses. Uh, that, that to me is evidence enough that he's touching on subjects that those in control may not want him to touch. And the same thing happens to me. Fortunately, uh, I, haven't, I haven't had the, the need to look for a job. So I don't know what would I find if I ever go that route. The same thing happened to you, James, after you left the military and tried to seek uh, employment. When I said, let's fast forward for a moment and then go back in time. Tell us what happened after when you tried to seek employment. Well, uh, at the time that I started looking for jobs, the war in Vietnam was still going strong. So there was an emphasis on on seeing uh, your draft card or your DD-214. Every employer wanted to see your DD-214 or know why you weren't, uh, uh, what your draft situation was. So I'd show my DD-214, and then uh, after having built up to expect some uh, kind consideration for my application to work, uh, I'd be just coolly brushed off. So I finally went to a personnel office in a company in in my hometown, and uh, I struck up a sort of rapport with the man that was dealing with me, and uh, when that happened, I just asked him quite openly and, and blatantly, uh, can you tell me why it is that uh, this is happening? Because uh, really, I, uh, this pattern just keeps, keeps reoccurring, and I'm not really given any reason why I'm turned down. And he says, well, you see this? And he pointed to this code that was on my DD-214. And I said, yeah. And he says, well... It's because of that code. And I said, uh, I was told that code couldn't be read. He says, well, it can be. And that's all he would say. But uh, uh, that, uh, that brought me to the, the, to the serious uh, understanding that uh, uh, intentionally or not, I was being minimalized as to what my future options were. And so I began to investigate that. Finally, ended up going to the Veterans Administration and, and raising the devil about it. And they uh, decided that uh, I must indeed have some kind of, of uh, a history that they wanted to look into. So they said, oh, let us uh, send you to this uh, hospital for uh, assessment. And they send me to a rather secluded facility in Colorado. I'm in Texas, where, where when I arrived at this facility, Fort Lyons, Colorado, uh, I was given the inpatient job of assistant registrar and had access to all the patient's files, past, present. And so uh, that was uh, sort of uh, reminiscent of what happened to me uh, during my medical discharge from the Navy when I was sent to the Philadelphia Naval Hospital and given the job of assistant librarian and, and given access to some rather very, very sensitive people. Do you remember, this was in the 70s, I presume? 
No. This no? was in six this was in the sixties. Sixties. Do you remember any key findings while you were a librarian? At the assistant librarian at Philadelphia Naval Hospital? Yes. Uh, yes, I, I was uh I was exposed to some people that had had been part of a, a very delicate uh, experiment, uh, something that uh, has been continually attempted to be swept under the rug and uh, I saw firsthand that these people existed and that the rumors and the stories about this experiment were true. Uh, I don't want to go into this to, in any extent or actually name the experiment or anything because these people I know are still alive and I don't want any kind of, of undue attention to be borne down on them so that their situation changes in the least in any adverse way. What else did you find that you could share with us? Well, uh, the incident that occurred that led to my medical discharge was a UFO event uh, aboard uh, an oil tanker that I was on in Sasebo Harbor, Japan, before Christmas of 1962. And uh, this, uh, this impacted... Uh, uh, not just on me, but it impacted on some of the crew, and it, uh, I believe, led to the the captain's uh, loss of command. Uh, I was uh, uh, not given much choice in, in what subsequently happened, and there were uh, things associated with uh, with this whole thing that are extremely abnormal, and that uh, uh, the only reason that I was given uh, a, a quick release from from the Navy and allowed to go on uh, is that any time that I was questioned, I would simply say, well, there were lights and they were doing what I knew they couldn't do, so I must have been hallucinating and let it go at that. Can you be specific as to what you really saw? I was under duress at the time, had to eat in the day that day, and we were work, being worked until late in the night. I'd already had a, a physical ailment. wasn't in great shape. I was upset emotionally. And uh, my whole division was out working on the well deck of the tanker as punishment because uh, we had, uh, the, well, the captain was in a tear because he didn't get good marks during an admiral's inspection. So we're being worked out there, and then they call the work off, and uh, I'm asked to put all the gear away in the gear locker. So I'm down there doing that, and all of a sudden, I feel a wave come over me from different directions, and I turn and I face the rail, and uh, I see these lights coming in. They're coming in over the mountains to the left. They're coming in over the sea to the right, and uh, they form a V. And that V's pointed directly at me overhead and off the uh, the the ship's uh, rail about 250, 300 yards, and they seem to be moving towards me. And all of a sudden, I, I see inside them. I know what's going on. It happened to me once before, and I this revulsion starts, and and they just stop start popping out of the air uh, like they were vaporizing and nothing hits the water. And uh, so uh, as this 
when this happens, I, I, it takes the last strength out of me, and I, I guess I passed out. Uh, there were people that saw that. I mean, I didn't know at the time there were, but uh, according to what I found out later, they, they saw it. There were three or four of them. Uh, the uh, uh, next thing I know, the chief petty officer standing over me, he's reaching down and uh, pulling me up and says, okay, Horik, let's go up to sick bay. And, and I say, wait a minute, let me get my shoes on. My, my feet were cold. And he says, Horik, we've been trying to get you to put your shoes on for the last 20 minutes. And so I look down, my shirt's unbuttoned, my pants are unbuttoned, and uh, I, I really don't understand what's going on. And uh, uh, so I start buttoning myself up and putting my shoes on, and he says, we're going up to sickbay, and he gives me a sedative. And by that time, it's uh, not an hour to Reveille. And uh, when I hit the rack, Reveille blows. I haven't had anything to eat for 24 hours. And uh, I've been been working for 18 hours, or or maybe even more. I've been I'm under a heavy sedative, and uh, at that time I had a condition called hyperinsulinism, due to something that had happened to me in boot camp, ptomaine poisoning. And so I wasn't in the best shape. And so when I jumped out of the rack and hit the the floor, I just collapsed. And uh, I come to, and uh, the chief again is over me, and he says, okay, Hark, we're taking you ashore. So that's, I ended up in a little hospital, a military hospital in, in Sasebo, and the doctor there said, well, we're sending you back to the States for a medical discharge. And I said, I don't want a medical discharge. And he said, well, that's the only option we have. We're not sending you back to your command. So, uh, and he also mentioned that, uh, that, that there was an investigation going on and that there were other uh, members of the crew who, who had different ailments and uh, some strange things seemed to have caused them after that incident. Now, that's, uh, that's all I, I knew about it at the time until I get to Akuska. They send me to Akuska, which is a big military hospital in Akuska, Japan, and uh, I'm there for, for oh, I guess, maybe a month and a half to two months. And uh, would have probably been there a little longer, but, but something happened again there. That just seems to be the, uh, the pattern. And uh, when I'm at Akuska, I have a CID man following me around everywhere I go. That's uh, like internal affairs. And this guy and I became good friends. He was a native-born Russian. He spoke a number of languages exceedingly well, had all kinds of money, and he was a lower rank than me. Uh, he had a pod parasha on a ring that was the size of a marble, uh, obviously not a seaman apprentice. And uh, I, he, he, uh, we became such close friends, he gave me his picture and his address and said, uh, when you're in New York, look me up. And uh, I've still got the picture, and I've got his address and name on the back of it. So, uh, but uh, some some things happened there, and so they decided they're going to send me back to the States. So they put me on a mats, which was, I guess, the 
the jet of choice at that time, 727 or whatever. And a strange thing happens on the way back. A strange thing happens when we land. When you say a strange thing, UFO-related again? Uh, no. If, the, if you can say it even more bizarre than that, uh, they put me in the mats and uh, strap me in a rack, and then they bring in these uh, seven or eight Marines who are bandaged up like mummies, and they tell me that they're not expected to live. They were in a stand-up bar in Tokyo that caught fire, and uh, they're going to give them morphine uh, and, and keep them out of pain. And that's fine. I understand that. But when the nurse starts coming back, she's shooting me up with morphine, too. And this is every two hours. I mean, it's the kind of thing you give a terminal patient. Sure. But she's giving it to me, so I decide, you know, I'm not doing this anymore. So uh, I don't know how this operates, but this blue mist came up with these little gold specks in it, and she couldn't open the door. She's banging on the door. Of course, we're all strapped in, and there, after a few hours, they start uh, get their delirium starts getting worse, and and I know. Uh, I figure they're in pain, so uh, something happens. I have no idea what, but in another three or four hours, they start pulling off their bandages. And they get all their bandages off, and I'm I'm looking at them. I got my head cocked up looking at them, and they're looking around at me like, who the hell are you? And, and they get them off. They get out of their racks, and they get around. They all know each other. And they're, they get me out of my rack. Hold on. What about the burns? No burns. Nothing. They're fine. They thought they had a bad dream. And then the nurse can come in the cabin. The blue mist is gone. And she comes in the cabin, and she goes into shock. I mean, you just stand there motionless. She, we Hold on, to, James. These people were being taken to the United States because they were in a fire, and they were almost terminal. Right. Right. That's what they, that's what I'm told. That's okay. what the, the nurse told me. What did they say? Were, were they really involved in a fire or was this a ploy to maybe disappear them and use them for an ulterior purpose? Oh, they they had uh, they they wouldn't have really talk much about it. They thought it was a dream. They they from what I could tell, they thought they had suffered from friendly fire, napalm. Uh-huh. And uh, that's what they thought. I mean, they, that's what I get from before they totally came out of it. When they totally came out of it, they weren't talking. They just thought that, that it was all a bad dream. And they wouldn't talk about what, I mean, it was like they were special forces under some kind of really secret operation. I don't know, but they. Uh, I'm just telling you what I could gather before. They became real close-lipped, but, the, I mean, we sat there. We were looking for a deck of cards. We were all friendly, and uh, they, I don't think they really thought they'd ever been hurt. So I'd, I can't say, but I know that the nurse didn't come out of shock. We couldn't get her out of shock. We finally strapped her into one of the racks that was attached to the bulkhead or the fuselage, and she just laid there, and I went up. And banged on the cabin and, and found out that I could get inside and told the pilots. I said, uh, hey, we have a nurse here that needs a shot of morphine. 
So she came to to give you the shot, and you guys were the ones giving her the shot. Oh, well, I wanted a little poetic justice out of it. (laughs) (laughs) But before you continue with this story, I want to, I'm glad we talked yesterday, because I remember when you started with the Navy, I believe, you were called home because your grandfather uh, passed away. Yes. And you were at a hospital. I, I want you to tell that story. Well, I just got on my my first ship, and I was going to be on it six months and then sent to school. This is before Japan. Yes. I was going to go uh, on it for six months and then go to ET school, Treasure Island, between San Francisco and and, uh, Oakland. So uh, I'm on the ship. Uh, We're in dry dock at the time, and uh, this was a new ammunition ship, the newest in the fleet, and it was being... Uh, fitted with M-frames so that they could shoot these uh, cruise missiles, or not cruise missiles, but Regulus missiles, that were that the uh, light and uh, heavy cruisers were carrying. And uh, we'd shoot it over to them on these high lines real fast, and they could load up these cartridges that, that were under the, the missile launch real fast. It was an experimental thing. So they were in the dry dock getting fitted for these in, in, uh, uh, at Hutter's Point. And so uh, I, I get this uh, uh, message that uh, my grandfather's dying my, from my mother. And so I apply for emergency leave and take off. And uh, on the way back from emergency leave, I have a layover in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And uh, I'm sitting there reading a novel, and this man walks by, and he stops, and he says, how's that novel? It was a real popular novel at the time, Catcher in the Rye. Oh, yeah. And so he's he's asked me how it is, and I said, I don't know. I'd trade it for for polite conversation. So he sits down, uh, and uh, he's got a nice way about him. We're talking. And... uh, he teaches me a game that uh, actually is a kind of a secret code for for uh, one member of a secret society to recognize another, and uh, so I think I've, I'm interested in that. And then uh, uh, we we sit there and we talk. I never identify myself. He never identifies himself. But then it gets bizarre. He starts talking about some really some really far out stuff and so I start getting uncomfortable and I get up to leave and I, I get about 20 feet away and he says oh yeah uh, that uh, what's going to happen to you in in a Japanese bay uh, it'll come out alright don't worry about it and so when he says that uh uh, you know, I, I'm confirmed. He, he's asked me to do something that, that is so far out that, that uh, I can't understand uh, any aspect or make heads and tails out of it. That's why I got up to leave. And then he says that, and I'm gone. I go out and stand and wait for my bus to get ready. So, uh, How many uh, years before the, the Japan incident was that? Oh, it was... Uh, that would have been in late '61, and uh, it uh, uh, it was just uh, about a year later that uh, that was it would have been uh, 
the thing that happened to me in Sasebo Harbor, the UFO event, would have been just before Christmas of 62. How do you think he knew that you were going to be involved in something in Japan? I know how he knew. And how, how is that? Uh, I've spoken about this before. It's very difficult to explain, but it is a technique that uh, people that have reached a very high level of technology uh, can use. It's, it's, it goes beyond time travel. It's compression of time. And it requires a completely different model understanding and a different way of looking at uh, physics. But uh, uh, I know that they're trying to work on this because I see evidence of it even where, near where I live. So I know that they're trying to develop this type of technology, but uh, they're not being very successful. What is the purpose of this technology? It's to travel both uh, in time and dimension uh, by, in a way that you don't affect uh, the progression, you don't affect uh, uh, event. Uh, you're traveling in, in, in and through uh, parts uh, of, of where the, the, ten the continuum has already been, been damaged in their rifts. And you can utilize this but the way you utilize it, you, you, you develop a truer concept of, 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 a, uh, of time as being like a spring. And it, uh, it has a continuum in the, in the path of that, that that spring is designed. But you can take and compress it down. And where the points meet in that compression is where these rifts are. And you use these rifts like portals so that you can actually, uh, it's like a stepping stone across a stream. Instead of actually stepping in the water, you step on the stones and you just go right across the stream. Well, that's similar in concept. Now, that's a very simplistic way of looking at it, but if you're not familiar with the better model for uh, wave theory and nonlinear progressions, then, then there's no other way to explain it. And, of course, that deals with physics that, that I'm sure that, they, that uh, these secret projects attack, but uh, they're not going to write about or disclose. How did you come to know this technology? Well, I can't account for for things for many things that I know. Now, I I, I, I read everything that I can when I'm uh, uh, involved in in something that's uh, that has happened in my life that uh, uh, has no explanation. I have an obsession to resolve anomaly. I mean, I always have. It it uh, has led me uh, to places I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have gone otherwise. And when this happens, uh, and I come up against the, the, the mindset wall of conventional science uh, over and over again, I understand that uh, uh, I, I don't think it's ignorance. I, I think that these people build an artificial reality out of, out of uh, uh, very superficial theory and, and thesis, and, and then 
stonewall. Uh, the the mainline science and technology uh, in order to control technology and to control, uh, in many ways, uh, the discovery that every human being on this planet has a right to know about. Is this something that is in the possession of the United States or perhaps a, a group beyond government? Well, I think that there, uh, there has always been a, a, a group beyond government, and I believe that uh, it, it uh, has been detected by various writers and journalists and, and fellow scientists over the last 200 years. And I think Jules Verne, is a, is a, most of his work is antecedent to the fact that there was a secret technolo technology that he wrote about, because absolutely when you read Jules Verne, there, there are essentially no really great leaps taken. Absolutely. I'm so glad that you mentioned Jules Verne because I almost hardly talk about this with anybody. But if you read Jules Verne and you look at the technology he talks about is uh, what, we get, what we have today over, what, 100 years after? Well, look at, look at uh, Captain Nemo. Captain right. Nemo is the best example I can think of. Uh, we don't today. We, we have a school of historians. We have a school of science. We have a school of this, a school of that. We, we have come so far away from believing that uh, one man can have the magnificence and genius of so many men in the past. You know, the, the, the last one was Nikolai Tesla, and uh, they did everything they could to obscure Nikolai Tesla from the public. I mean, here is the man that single-handedly pioneered the whole field of electronics. There is absolutely nothing in electronics today Uh, that he didn't envision. Now, look at the last five years of this man's life. <clears throat> What does he do? Uh, is he being interviewed? Is, are journalists going down, talking to him? Are scientists coming, trying to get ideas? What? No. No, he's in a he's, hotel in New York. Yeah, and he goes down and feeds pigeons. That's his life. He's considered a pariah. Uh, the media plays up to it. Uh, the the FBI is watching him, uh, you know, uh, and why? Because he is brilliant, because he is one of those men out of time geniuses, like Da Vinci, like so many, Michelangelo, like so many of these people that, you know, if you give them the laboratory, if you give them the access to industry, they'll take you to the stars, What do you estimate happened to those people, the, the, the Teslas of the world? How can somebody come up with so many ideas? I mean, the, the transmission of electricity, etc. Of course, we know that a lot of this technology has been sequestered. And some, some people say that it has been lost. Nothing is lost. Did they have some help with their DNA that was upgraded to the point that they became these geniuses? I think Tesla, uh, it's hard to say, but I think te Tesla was born with a genius. And I think early on, uh, probably because he was not indoctrinated with the public school system we have today and not taught a false uh, concept of what electricity is, the electron theory BS, That, that uh, Tesla, uh, his own powers of observation took over and his own pursuit of, in, in 
an attempt to answer important questions and anomalies that he detected probably before he was 12 years old, the man came up with a clarity that the that public education, that uh, uh, formal science, uh, conventional science and technology uh, expends every effort to avoid. Uh, he uh, was free of, of uh, let's say, uh, conventional context. And, and, and he had the brain and he had the mind to explore uh, what was behind the curtain. And, and and he probably did this just just instinctively, and and when he came to America, he was so far ahead of Edison that Edison immediately took a dislike to him, for uh, because he assaulted uh, Edison's ego, and uh, he tried to convince Edison that you know you you shouldn't be trying to to uh, provide electricity to these skyscrapers with DC because by the time that you get 30,000 volts up to that top floor it won't light a light bulb and uh, Edison wouldn't listen to him Edison just said oh no DC's the way to go DC's the way to go because uh, Edison was never the man that he was portrayed to be uh, he had a, uh, a laboratory of inventors and he took credit for their work, and uh, he didn't have the foresight or the sensitivity to, to uh, uh, well, uh, I would say the Polish joke works with him. How many Edisons does it take to light a light bulb? How many? Take, I'd say about 10 by the time they get through arguing with, you know, who's right and who's wrong. Right. And then J.P. Morgan came along. And, of course, Tesla needed some funding to get his inventions uh, produced. What happened with J.P. Morgan? Well, uh, Tesla had been taken off by Edison for $100,000. Edison thought he'd stick it in Tesla because he was so obscenely jealous with him. And he, he fixed him up. He said, if you can give me a booster station... Transformer booster station from my DC to my skyscrapers in a certain amount of time and at a certain amount of efficiency, I'll give you $100,000. So Tesla did it. And when he went to collect his money, uh, Edison just said, tough dookie. And so uh, Tesla never got over it, and he picked the wrong man to get even with. He, he conned J.P. Morgan. Of course, J.P. Morgan was a horse of a different kind, or a cat of a different Glitter. type. No, he would, uh, yeah, and and uh, a lot of people have a lot of bad things to say about J.P. Morgan, and he was, uh, he, he uh, most of them are true, but uh, he was very colorful. He he was uh, very able. Uh, he did not like. Uh, the monopolies and cartels that were forming, although he was a party to one of the worst, railroads and oil. But uh, uh, he was also a maverick. And when, when uh, he talked with Tesla, and Tesla said, well, he could pull the rug out from underneath the utility companies. And the utility companies had shut J.P. Morgan out. J.P. Morgan jumped at the chance. But he... But, Tesla omitted telling him that if you produce free energy, it can't be gauged and charged for. So, 
when somebody finally got around to telling J.P. Morgan that J.P. Morgan <laughs> withdrew uh, his support from Tesla, Tesla went to uh, one of the big utility companies, either uh, Westinghouse or General Electric. I never can remember which one, and sold them all of his patents. And we're talking about basic patents. And he had a armload full of them, and he sold them all to them for a million dollars. And I wonder if, uh, I think it was Westinghouse, that's the name that I kept hearing, if they still have them. Of course, sequestering is the best thing they can do for the bottom line, don't you think? Well, they're not so bad about that. Uh, uh, now, there were there were a lot of, of uh, patent pendings and a lot of uh, patent applications that, uh, that Tesla had already uh, applied for and that were on the record that, that were for particle weapons, uh, beam weapons, beam energy weapons, uh, all kinds of really far out stuff that, that the military industrial complex has taken and run, and run with. But uh, these, uh, these were laying, these were in that safe that the FBI uh, plundered after his death. Do you think that Tesla was the root or the inventor or the precursor of what we know today as directed energy weapons? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, the, the, the thing about Tesla was that he, that he loved uh, to prove a point. And so he would give these demonstrations. And, of course, military from all, all over the world would come to watch them. And uh, there was no explanation how they worked. And uh, he could do, I mean, he was a magician in many ways. But uh, Tesla began to understand that the people that were, were, were going to corner him in, into a mold, were not the kind of people that he wanted to do business with. Uh, he didn't want to uh, harm humanity. He didn't want to uh, create bigger and better weapons. Uh, but uh, when his demonstrations could only draw people if that's exactly what, what he did, you know. And, and uh, it was a, a sad, pathetic thing. And I've seen other men suffer this way uh, when they try to do something that has ramifications vastly beyond weaponry, but then, then it, the, it's come in, taken, and then just condensed to... to to weaponry, with all the other ramifications totally ignored, and uh, uh, that's that's what I think broke him. I think that uh, uh, he was a broken man those la last uh, five years of his life, and uh, uh, that that you know that is is a comment on the state of humanity, on this well not humanity but the state of of our society today. So basically, he lost it all, and then was given enough money to to live in that New York hotel until the day he died, because otherwise he would have been destitute. Well, and that was only out of the generosity of the company that bought all his patents. Right. I mean, they didn't have to do that. They did. They they uh, paid for a suite in in the New York hotel. Uh, up until, you know, the, in perpetuity, uh, as long as he was alive. 
and uh, gave him a stipend to live on, or else he would have been on the street. Why did he sell all his patents out of desperation? Uh, he wanted to finish off uh, the last of his experiments. He, Tesla claimed that uh, the ball lightning that he could produce uh, had intelligence and that uh, it, it served as a portal for communication uh, elsewhere. And he claimed that uh, he had uh, uh, gained a, a communication with uh, halls or, or tunnels underneath Mars, the surface of Mars, where there were vast machines. And that these machines were driven by computers he could communicate with. Now, you know, that, uh, that might be right there. That might be the, the scenario that was followed at Montauk. And uh, uh, they claimed very much the same things. The people that have come forward that, that seem to, to be indicated to have been there. Have you found anything regarding life under the surface of Mars or any other planet in our solar system, perhaps the moon? There's life. Uh, it's not in a form that, that, that we might qualify as life on Mars. There, there are uh, bases there. there. There are bases on the moon. Uh, there is, uh, uh, if you're, you're talking about uh, civilizations that have survived from the deep past into the present, no. Uh, but uh, the, the moon is, is not home to this system. Uh, it uh, is from elsewhere. It uh, has a large cavity inside. It uh, uh, has a, uh, a self-adjusting gravity field. It has an atmosphere. There are lakes on the moon. There are, there are uh, artificial structures. And uh, uh, they are, there are many of them. Uh, there are incidents for 300 years, astronomers recorded transient lunar phenomena, TLP. Only in the last uh, 50 years has that been classified. And uh, transient lunar phenomena like lights, like tracks in the craters, like uh, something moving, uh, things like that. So, Are there any other moons in our solar system that behave the same way as our moon? In other words, it rotates, yes, but we can never see the other side of the moon. We're all always facing the same side. Well, you need to, what, what you need to do is you need to observe the other moons and see what their geometric motion is with their planets. And if our moons are unique in that respect, that's another indication that, it, right. that its origin is not from in this system. But it's almost as if it was placed to rotate the way it does on purpose, because there's something on the other side that wants to remain uh, overt. Co- I'm, I'm sorry, covert. Well, I'm, uh, I think that's exploited. I don't think that, that, that the technology to do that has been available for some time, except by ET, and ET's not going to mess with it. Uh, I, I, it's something that it's exploited. It's a hiding place. Uh, there, there are various astronauts that have suggested that the, the other side of the moon is lit up like cities, 
Well, uh, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. And, what, and, what information do you know of what's on the other side that we cannot see? Well, they're absolutely right. There, there's a lot of activity there. Uh, there <clears throat> I had, I sell books online, and I had a book on the petroleum, on the petrology of the moon. Uh, it was Lunar Petrology. And this, was, this book was about 280 pages. Uh, it was uh, oversized paperback. Uh, I've, somewhere I've got the receipt for it that I sold it to a Norwegian scientist who was just ecstatic to get it. And I'll tell you this, that you cannot acquire the data that was in that book unless you're there, unless you have uh, a, a very extensive uh, uh, team of geophysicists doing this work. What book was that? It was, uh, I, I can probably find the receipt where I've got the, the, uh, the, the number for the book. And I've, I've got uh, the description and, and uh, the publisher and everything. But uh, uh, evidently, I mentioned this book before, and nobody's ever really pressed me to go dig up the receipt and to give it to them. I mean, Do you remember uh, the name? No, but I can, I can find it. I mean, it, I can assure you it exists and that I can find a record of it. And, and, and you know, hopefully uh, maybe, our, uh, maybe other people have seen this book and will we'll come forward with it. But it, it's, it's not a book of theory. It, it's a book of data that's taken from doing uh, exploratory work that can't be done by probes. I was just going to say, a book on petrology of the moon. We went to the moon a few times, allegedly, and I say allegedly, folks, because I'm not a debunker of the of, of uh, uh, the Apollo mission, uh, because I don't have enough information that convinces me that we didn't go or that we did go. It's in my interesting bucket. At the same time, I don't think we had the time to to determine if there's petroleum on on the moon. And you're saying there's a book that uh, is scientifically written explaining the findings. Every, and every, every, there, this book will give you uh, the mineralogy uh, of the moon uh, as exactly as anything that's been done on the earth. And we have to take a, a short break very soon, our own one and only break, folks. But having said what you said about this book, there's a few books out there that if you go to Amazon, for example, I'll give you an example. Uh, Ingo Swan wrote a book called Penetration regarding remote viewing the moon. That book is out of print, and if you find it used every so often, it just goes about $1,000. The same thing happens to a book called The Ringmakers of Saturn by Dr. Norman Berggren, uh, who I happen to have spoken on the phone today because in almost every interview, James, the name of this man, this gentleman, comes along all the time. And the book, as you know, and as many of the listeners know, was published in 1986. It is out of print now. You cannot get it. But I decided to, to try to contact this gentleman because everybody told me that he doesn't grant interviews anymore. And if those who are listening know me, you know that it's not sufficient for me to say, no, I'm not going to pursue it. So I did pursue speaking to him today, and, and he will be with us in about six months. His wife recently passed away, so he's not in the most enlightening mood right now. But he is working on something very important. He's very busy trying to, to 
to come forward with a theory to prove what happened to the Clementine or Clementine probe. I also asked him before I hung up, I had to ask him this question. I said, is there a correlation between what you found on the rings of Saturn and what we're seeing on around the moon? And he said, absolutely. Around, around the sun. Around, I'm sorry, around the sun. Thank you, thank you for correcting. Um, and once I'm done with my research, everything will make sense. So I look forward to Dr. Bergram's conclusions. James, do you have a website? Uh, do you have a way in which people can get uh, in touch with you at all? Aside from our forum, which, by the way, folks, James Horak is part of our Manticore forum, and uh, he's been more than a delight to, to interact with everybody who has questions for him. No, I don't have a website. I don't have a uh, anything like that. I've, uh, in fact, uh, haven't uh, even thought to go that direction. I at one time was uh, teamed up with another individual, and he and I had a website and an email forum together, but that was quite a few years ago. And uh, uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with me or discuss anything, then just look me up. Uh, uh, Google will uh, uh, be able to, to give them the information. I, I'll tell them this much. I live in Fort Worth, Texas. Or just come directly to our forum, and James is That's a frequent right. participant uh, at our forum. Folks, don't go anywhere. We're going to be discussing a lot more. Uh, we're going to be discussing the objects around the sun. We're going to be discussing the oil spill. James has some solutions for the oil that has spilled already and how we can save the marine life that is in jeopardy right now. So don't go anywhere. A very fascinating show. This is Mel Fabregas. And you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with James Horak in our member section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. Now, I want you to listen to the following song and the message that a child has for those who are in control. Please listen. Hello, I'm Severin Suzuki speaking for ECHO, the Environmental Children's Organization. We're a group of 12 and 13 year olds trying to make a difference. Vanessa Setti, Morgan Geisler, Michelle Quigg, and me. We've raised all the money to come here ourselves, to come 5,000 miles to tell you adults you must change your ways. Coming up here today, I have no hidden agenda. I am fighting for my future. Losing my future is not like losing an election or a few points on the stock market. I am here to speak for all generations to come. I am here to speak on behalf of the starving children around the world whose cries go unheard. I am here to speak for the countless animals dying across this planet because they have nowhere left to go. I am afraid to go out in the sun now because of the holes in our ozone. I am afraid to breathe the air because I don't know what chemicals are in it. And now we hear of animals and plants going extinct every day, vanishing forever. In my life, I have dreamt of seeing the great herds of wild animals, jungles and rainforests, full of birds and butterflies, but now I wonder if they will even exist 
for my children to see. Did you have to worry of these things when you were my age? All this is happening before our eyes, and yet we act as if we have all the time we want and all the solutions. I'm only a child, and I don't have all the solutions. But I don't. I want you to realize, neither do you. You don't know how to fix the holes in our ozone layer. You don't know how to bring the salmon back up in a dead stream. You don't know how to bring back an animal now extinct. And you can't bring back the forest that once grew where there is now a desert. If you don't know how to fix it, please stop breaking it. Here, you may be delegates of your government, business people, organizers, reporters, or politicians, but really, your mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, aunts and uncles, and all of you are someone's child. I'm only a child, yet I know we are all part of a family, five billion strong. In fact, 30 million species strong. I'm only a child, yet I know we are all in this together and should act as one single world towards one single goal. In my anger, I am not blind, and in my fear, I am not afraid of telling the world how I feel. In my country, we make so much waste. We buy and throw away, buy and throw away, buy and throw away, and yet northern countries will not share with the needy, even when we have more than enough we are afraid to share. We are afraid to let go of some of our wealth. This is what one child told us. I wish I was rich. And if I were, I would give all the sweet children food, clothes, medicines, shelter, and love and affection. If a child on the streets who has nothing is willing to share why are we who have everything still so greedy? I can't stop thinking that these are children my own age, that it makes a tremendous difference where you were born. That I could be one of those children living in the favelas of Rio. I could be a child starving in Somalia, or a victim of war in the Middle East, or a beggar in India. money spent on war was spent on finding environmental answers, ending poverty, and finding treaties. What a wonderful place this earth would be. At school, even in kindergarten, you teach us how to behave in the world. You teach us to not to fight with others, to work things out, to respect others, to clean up our mess not to hurt other creatures, to share, not be greedy. Then why do you go out and do the things you tell us not to do? Do not forget why you are attending these conferences, who you're doing this for. We are your own children. You are deciding what kind of world we are growing up in. Parents should be able to comfort their children by saying, everything's going to be all right. It's not the end of the world, and we're doing the best we can. But I don't think you can say that to us anymore. Are we?
we even on your list of priorities? My dad always says, you are what you do, not what you say. Well, what you do makes me cry at night. You grown-ups say you love us, but I challenge you, please, make your actions reflect your words. Howdy, this is Jim Mars, and you're listening to Veritas. Pay attention. 